We'd li- I'd like to open Scripture this afternoon in connection with the sermon on Lord's Day 22. We'd like to read from two portions of God's Word in Philippians and then one portion in the second last chapter of the Bible. First of all, Philippians 1, verse 18. Philippians 1, verse 18. The Apostle Paul has been talking about people who preach Christ out of various motives. And he says in verse 18, What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, namely his, his imprisonment, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And then we turn to three, chapter 3, verse 12. After the apostle has talked about the righteousness that comes from Christ, by faith alone. Then he says in 3 verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your your eyes open on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ." Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then thirdly, we turn to Revelation chapter 21, and we'll read the first five verses. Revelation 21, verse 1, the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, with man. 
He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I understand that in the afternoon services you have been all over the Heidelberg Catechism, so I chose to preach about Lord's Day 22, which is always comforting and encouraging for all of us, especially as we age, and I do believe we're all aging, regardless of what the number looks like for you. Lord's Day 22, the words of our catechism, what comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? Not only shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ my head, but also this my flesh raised by the power of Christ shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. What comfort do you receive from the article about the life everlasting, since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall after this life possess perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll praise God with the words of hymn 68, stanzas 1 and 2. Beloved brothers and sisters, in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it happens one moment a loved one is with us, part of a network of affection and friendship, a maker of plans, a dreamer of dreams. He or she is there for us to enjoy and to share. But then one day it happens. Sometimes expected, sometimes unexpected. Death claims him or her, and there is no means by which he or she can be recovered. Death is final because it brings to an end all earthly plans and the fulfillment of all earthly hopes. Whatever was unfinished at death must remain forever unfinished. Death is also certain. Someone pointed out that during World War II, war did not really increase the death rate. Death is total in every generation. War, unfortunately, means that people who are going to die, die earlier than we expect. The statistics of death are quite impressive. One out of one people die. The leading cause of death is life. And yet it's striking, maybe it struck you, did you notice that in this Lord's Day that deals with this very matter, the word death is not even mentioned? Why not? Maybe because for the authors of the Catechism, those who believe in Christ are so united with Him that death poses no real threat. Lord's Day 16 already said, our death puts an end to sin as an entrance into eternal life. This, it seems, is what Lord's Day 22 is also about, this entrance into eternal life, how it happens and what it means. 
Lord's Day 22 is not really about death, it's about life. How our lives will continue even despite this thing called death. How our lives are so united with Jesus Christ that we who have died with him do truly live with him. For what is life, according to the Scriptures? Is life that blood flows? Is life that our brains work? Or is this life, as our Lord Jesus says, that they know you, the only true God, that we have fellowship with God, as our confession says? Paul once said to the Corinthians, the last enemy is to be destroyed is death. Why is death an enemy? Because it destroys life in contrast to God, the creator and the author of life, and because God's desire is to give us not death, but life. This, then, is the blessedness of Lord's Day 22. It moves us on to a world where there will be no more death, only life, perfect, wondrous life, because of He who lives, our Lord Jesus Christ. So God's Word comes to under this theme, in Jesus Christ we enjoy the life that never ends. We'll talk about the continuation of our lives at our death, the glorification of our lives in the resurrection, and the blessedness of our lives into all eternity. Brothers and sisters, the degree to which the Catechism is at pains to speak about life and the continuation of our lives after death is evident from what happens in Answer 57. Answer 57 has been called by some an intrusion, but it's a delightful intrusion. For the question reads, what comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? The question is really dealing with something that is a, is, a, is a far off at the end of human history as we know it, the resurrection of the body. And the catechism, however, when it answers the question, the catechism does this kind of stuff more often, it doesn't really answer the question because the catechism doesn't immediately focus on the resurrection, that dramatic point at the end of history, it doesn't go to the glorious time of Christ's return when the dead will rise, but it goes to the time when you and I will die. And it gives us this delightful expression, not only shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ my head. You see, the Lord's Day is about life. For the first point it wants to make is that the believer's communion with Christ is not broken even by death. Christ and those who belong to Christ are so united, so joined together, and so indwelt by His Spirit that when they die, their communion is not interrupted. In fact, it's improved, it's intensified at the time of death. Well, does the catechism say, my only comfort in life and in death as I belong to my Savior. Many have doubted, of course, this idea that we're immediately with our Lord Jesus Christ. They've looked, for instance, at the phrase of the, the Scriptures, fallen asleep, and they suggested that that means that the, the time between our death and our resurrection, when Jesus comes back, is a time when we're actually unconscious. It's a time of sleeping. But that's not really the scriptural meaning at all. Whenever our Lord Jesus or the Apostle Paul used that phrase, the comparison is not between a state of consciousness and a state of unconsciousness. It's not that before death we are conscious, after death we are unconscious. Rather, behind this notion is the idea that death is only temporary. Sleep is usually followed by an awakening, is it not? 
If you had the pleasure of an afternoon nap this afternoon and you lay out straight, straight horizontally, nobody in your house doubted that there would be a time when you would get up and you would walk again and you would come here to church. Sleep is followed by an awakening. We take this for granted. We put our kids to bed and we presume after so many hours, far too early, they will certainly wake up. Well, so too, death is called sleep in the Scriptures because it's followed by a waking up. It will be followed by a resurrection. Already in Daniel 12, verse 2, we read, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempts. Similarly, our Lord Jesus had resurrection in mind when He said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I'm going to wake him up. It's because a human corpse lies in the grave still, as it were, resting and awaiting resurrection, that it's appropriate to call death sleep in a graveyard, a cemetery, which literally means a sleeping place. But it's so foolish to deduce soul sleep because the analogy has more to do with the body than it does with the soul. The analogy is about the fact that now they are horizontal, but there's a day coming when they will be vertical again. That's why it's, it's always important for us to go to a funeral or a funeral home and see someone horizontal. On the one hand, it's therapeutic. It tells us this is not your imagination. This is a reality. This person is not with us anymore. But on the other hand, you have to look at it with the eyes of faith and see that what's going to happen, it's not unlike that afternoon nap. One day they're going to get up and they're going to walk and they're going to be vertical again. That's the language of faith. Calvin points this out in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13 where Paul speaks about those who have fallen asleep. He says, don't be disturbed about those who have already fallen asleep. They will not be left out. Says Calvin, this phrase, fallen asleep, does not refer to the soul, but to the body, for the dead body lies in the tomb as in a couch until God raise up the man. Those, therefore, who act a foolish part, who infer from this, that souls sleep. And so it is. For the very same Paul, who has had occasion to see people who have died and who look very much like they're physically asleep, is very emphatic that those people are conscious. Their communion with Christ is not broken. It is intensified. The believer's passage to heaven is a direct route. The moment we take our last breath on earth, we take our first in heaven. Do you want to see that in 2 Corinthians 5, where the Apostle Paul describes this reality by comparing our present existence, which he calls being at home in the body. But he says when we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Conversely, he speaks of our time after death as being away from the body, but at home with the Lord. When our present bodies are dissolved, we will not be deprived of that communion with the Lord which we already enjoy in this life. Rather, joy of joys, that communion will be intensified and we will enter into a new and more intimate communion with our Lord Jesus. 
Similarly, when we read from Philippians 1, the Apostle Paul is able to speak of his death as, as gain. We so often speak of it as a loss. Sorry for your loss. And it is for the presence of others whom we have known and loved is no longer there. It's a loss for us. But Paul says there's also a sense in which it's gain. Gain for the believer. Why? Precisely because it will bring him or her and any believer into an even greater communion with Christ, our heavenly head. Writing from prison, Paul recognizes that he may well be put to death for the sake of the gospel, but he's not afraid because death would be better than life. To me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. That's quite a slogan. To live is Christ. Well, giving glory to Christ, to die is gain. And yet, recognizing that the Lord may very well have work for him to do on behalf of the Philippians and others, he doesn't look down on this life. For he says, I'm torn between these two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. What do you think? If, if, if death actually meant sleep, if death for Paul in the first century meant sleeping for decades and centuries until the return of Christ, would this be a contest? Would this be a question for him? Then, of course, he would rather stay and preach for as many years. For who does anything worthwhile while they sleep? But precisely because death means richer communion with Christ, therefore Paul is torn between departing and being with Christ which is better for himself, and remaining in the flesh, in the body, which is better for them. Where did Paul get this from? Well, it would seem that this is something the disciples learned from our Lord Jesus Christ himself. So often, when you have the ideas of Paul, you've got to trace them to the Gospels and see that's where they began. Who does not recall here the criminal hanging on the cross beside our Lord Jesus? And he says, Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, later, Jesus, when you get to where you're going, don't forget me. The criminal is like Joseph who in prison interprets the cupbearer's dream and then says, remember me when you get out of here. Mention me to Pharaoh when you think of him. But what does our Lord Jesus say? He says to this man, not tomorrow, not later, not at the end of time, but today you will be with me in paradise. One can think, too, of the parables. Many will be quick to point out you have to be careful to prove things from parables. That's true, but it's a fact, isn't it, that in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, delightful parable, Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus die and we get a description and a picture of them in this intermediate state. And what description is that? The rich man in Hades is very conscious of his agony. And across that unbridgeable chasm, he sees Lazarus, who's in the arms of Abraham, of all people. It's striking. It says the rich man dies. It's what happens to people who are outside of Christ. But it doesn't say Lazarus dies. It says the angels carried him straight to the arms of Abraham. In this life, no one paid attention to him. He was despised and rejected, but at the moment of his death, the Lord Jesus comes true to his promise, and he gathers him straight to the arms of Abraham. 
That's the biblical picture. Death poses no real threat in terms of our relation to Christ. The communion with Christ is not broken. I don't understand it, but Scripture teaches it. And this is faith, saying amen to whatever the Scriptures teach. And we may not let anyone rob us of any comfort that we receive from God's Word. We may stand comforted in the funeral home and in the, at the grave, for this is the Word of God, as amazing as it is. And that's not all. We see not only the continuation of our lives at our death, we also see the glorification of our lives at the resurrection. Because, you see, you see, the point is that though Scripture promises the believer an unbroken and even intensified communion with the Lord Jesus during the intermediate state, this state, between the time of our death and the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, remains a provisional and incomplete one. It is intermediate between the time of the believer's death, your death, my death, and the great, eagerly awaited time of the glorification of all the believer's in Christ through the resurrection of the body. Consequently, the hope of every Christian beyond the grave is focused ultimately not just on this point after death, but it's focused ultimately upon this participation in the harvest which remains to be reaped now that Christ the firstfruits has been raised from the dead. Think of it, the scriptural account of the creation of man and woman teaches man was created from the beginning, a living soul, a living being, a wondrous unity of soul and body fashioned for fellowship and communion with God. And afterwards, there's not a hint anywhere in the scriptures that man's bodily, fleshly existence is a hindrance to our fellowship with God. Many have thought so, but there's no suggestion or of a dualism or dichotomy of body and soul in which the body is considered inferior. Man was created for life, a covenant life with God, as a creature formed from the dust of the earth, his body was not in the beginning a prison house of the soul, as the Greeks always taught. His body was the indispensable medium of our creaturely life. It was necessary for the fulfillment of the mandate given to, to man, to us, to have dominion over creation. You've got to do that physically. You've got to walk and you've got to act and you've got to do things. But the point is, this kind of physical life comes back again. So it will be in the world without end. The physicalness comes back again. We will not just be some spiritual creatures wearing our halos and floating on clouds as some popular mythology might teach us. Our final and eternal existence will not only be in a new heaven. This new heaven is united with a new earth upon which we will stand and we will walk and we will live and we will serve God. We shouldn't make heaven and going to heaven everything. It's the first stop on the eternal journey. It's our penultimate state with the ultimate being, the new heaven and the new earth. The biblical view of the believer's future promises the redemption of the whole man, body and soul, in fellowship with Christ. It's the, it's the recreation of how it was in the beginning. Man was there physically as well as spiritually, body and soul. That comes back again. Redemption in Christ, therefore, includes, must include, the resurrection of the body. And it will, in fact, be so much better than ever before. 
Think of it in the Scriptures, there are several metaphors used to describe the difference between our present bodies, burdened and weighed down as they are by the consequence and the curse of sin, and our anticipated resurrection bodies. For example, in 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul employs two metaphors to describe the resurrection of the body. On the one hand, he employs the metaphor of a dwelling place to compare the weakness and fragility of our present bodies with the strength and indestructibility of our resurrection bodies. And so when he speaks about our present bodies, he actually speaks about tents. We all know, we've all known what tents are like. They're wet, they're cold, they're all right for a while, but ultimately soon you long for something better, maybe a trailer, maybe even home. Ultimately, tents provide inadequate shelter. We long for our homes again. Well, says Paul, after speaking about our tents, which quickly dissolve and pass away, our future dwelling is like those homes. The earthly tent we live in is being destroyed. Our future dwellings are like those homes. We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. In the next breath, he uses another metaphor, that of clothing. He employs the metaphor of clothing to compare our present mortality and liability to death to our future immortality and immunity to death. And then employing or mixing both metaphors at once, he declares, while we live in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Similarly, in Philippians 3, the apostle describes the believer as someone whose citizenship is in heaven and who eagerly awaits for the Savior to come from there. For when the Savior is revealed, Paul says, this is what will happen. He, the Savior, by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, everything under His control, will also transform our lowly bodies, literally the bodies of our humiliation, so that they will be like His glorious body. The language of this text promises us that one of the great acts of Christ's present reign at the Father's right hand will be this work of granting to the believer a full share in the power of His resurrection. Christ's glory as the risen Lord, as one in whom the power of sin and death has been vanquished, will be shared with all believers who receive bodies like His. Look at him. It ought to be a tremendous comfort. Look at him in all the passages about the resurrection, who he is, what he does. This is a picture of the life we will live. Physicalness comes back again in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of another passage. In 1 Corinthians 15, the relation between the believer's present perishable body and the future imperishable body is described with a figure of a seed which is sown in one form, but which after it dies, Paul says, it gives birth to a new and significantly different form of life. And so Paul writes, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. The body we lower into the grave 
It'll perish if it continues to live. But it's raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. But it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a, a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And that phrase, a spiritual body, doesn't mean to deny the physicality, but it means this is a body that is thoroughly and totally influenced and powered by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Finally, we will do everything we're meant to do will be everything we're meant to be. Do I understand how all this happens? No, I don't understand it. Especially when you think of people whose bodies have decayed to nothing but ashes, who have been burnt or scattered at sea. I don't understand this. Who can understand this? But again, the fact that God is the one who says it, that's good enough. For when it comes to the point, there's so much about the Christian life I don't understand. There's so much about life I don't understand. I don't understand about the Christian life, how, how God can be three and yet one, and man can be 100% responsible, and yet God is 100% sovereign. Jesus Christ can be 100% human and 100% divine. Who understands? It's part of the mystery of life and the mystery of the faith, and so too in creation. Can you understand, to come back to 1 Corinthians 15, how you get from one tiny little seed, a tree as big as a Douglas have you ever seen those things from one little seed? Can you understand, for that matter, how from the union of two people, the union of a sperm and an egg, you get a third person with all those parts and all those limbs and all that intricacy of life? Do you understand the first creation? God takes dust, forms it, breathes upon it, and there is this living physical being. Who can understand this? points to a God who is so much bigger than we are, of course, so much greater. Surely the God who does the one can do the other. These passages, no, they don't answer all our curious questions, yet they clearly teach that our present bodies will undergo a transformation, a transfiguration such that this mortal will put on immortality, this corruptible incorruption. There will be a measure of real continuity between our present bodies and our resurrection bodies. This body, this body will be transformed and glorified, and there will also be a measure of real discontinuity. This body will be changed, resurrected in the twinkling of an eye. It'd be better than it ever was before. This is the joy of the gospel. In raising believers, God completes their redemption by the gift, not of their old bodies somehow patched up, but of new bodies fit for new men, new women, and children. Through regeneration and sanctification, if all goes well in our lives, God has already renewed us inwardly. Well, there's a day coming when we'll have outer bodies that will match that inward reality. The new body is linked with the old, yet different from it, just as plants are linked with, yet different from the seeds from which they grow. The body I now have is very much like a student's old jalopy. Those old jalopies 
I've had a few in my student days. You buy one car in those days 50 years ago, 300 bucks, and a year later you've got to buy another one for 300 bucks. Can't do that anymore. But the student's old jalopy doesn't last. That's our body. It doesn't last. It'll fall apart. You need a new one. But my new body will feel and behave better than the best and the greatest Rolls Royce. And my service of God will never be spoiled by this body. It's good to think of what that means today. The Corinthians thought it didn't matter what they did in the body. Those bodies will just end up in the grave or on the ash heap. And that, that, that affected not only their theology, even their ethics. They said it's okay if you go to a prostitute because after all, it's just the body. And it's okay if you just dump me away on the ash heap. It's just the body. But Paul knows the resurrection of the body, and he says very strikingly, also in, 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 in uh, well, no, I better not say because I might be wrong. But he says a very striking thing, the Lord is for the body, and the body is for the Lord. The body is for the Lord Jesus Christ. A pure Plato-Aristotle well, would never talk about Jesus Christ, but they would never say that because the body's nothing. But Paul says, the, body, the Lord is for the body, and the body is for the Lord. So take care of what you do in the body. Be careful about where you go, what you do in this life. But be careful also about what you do in the life to come, what will happen to you in the life to come. We belong body and soul to the Lord. Therefore, be sure to glorify God in your body. It's good to think of what comfort this is as well. Today, there are people who know of physical limitations. Some are born with physical handicaps. Others get them later. There are the crippled and the deformed and the hormonally unbalanced. You name it. There's a process of old age. So often we want to do things, but our bodies can't do them anymore. How we can weep for joy then at the thought of the resurrection. None of this will be a problem. You can say goodbye to wheelchairs you can say goodbye to crutches. You can say goodbye to spectacles. Whatever your affliction, you can say goodbye to it because we will live on the new earth. The new earth, as one scholar said, how do you think of that? Think of it this way. Think of this earth, but then strip it of its hospitals, strip it of its cemeteries, strip it of its nursing homes, strip it of its, of its funeral homes, and that will be the new heaven united with the new earth. It will be a joy and a delight to serve God eternally. And we will be able to do that. We'll be consumed with that. Even in terms of our physical beings, we'll be able to do that which is our joy and delight like we never ever fully did it before. For we will be made like unto the glorious body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when I observe our Lord Jesus Christ in those resurrection passages, I so admire Him, never doing one thing that's wrong, never doing one thing that isn't dedicated to God. All of it is dedicated to God, and He does it all to the praise of our glorious God. And you see, it's only fitting that Lord's Day 22 should end thirdly with a thought about the blessedness of our lives into eternity. After this life, Perfect blessedness, it says. The old version used to speak about perfect bliss. 
It's one and the same. What is bliss but that wondrous state in which God blesses us completely? Life never gets better than that. Notice it speaks again in Lord's Day 22 about life everlasting. The believer's future is one in which that life and covenant communion with the triune God for which man was created will be realized in all the elect, the new humanity. And that life of communion will be a life everlasting. Paradise lost will have become paradise regained, even paradise eternalized. Notice, too, that it's not all future. It begins already here. I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. We have something unbelievers do not and cannot understand. There is joy, deep joy. You can stand at the grave. You can go through excruciating circumstances and yet there is a joy that no one can steal. For nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No one can snatch this future out of our hands. Why is it so wondrous? Why is it perfect blessedness? It will be that, no doubt, partly because of the resurrection of the body. Perfect blessedness. It will be that, no doubt, also because we will live on a new earth. How often on this earth already does not happen that you see things that take your breath away? Who has not climbed to the top of a mountain and stood in awe of the majesty of God who created all this for our enjoyment? Who can stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and not be impressed? What a God we have. They say that many a scientist stands in awe because of the marvelous intricacies, intricacies he sees through the microscope or through the telescope. Can you imagine what it will be like to live on a new earth when whatever defects and problems there are here will be no more? Perfect blessedness. But while all of that will be wonderful, no doubt, there's something else that will be the cause of true wonder. It's not the mountains. It's not the trees. It's not the new bodies or the new things we will enjoy. It will not be the gifts. It will be the giver himself. That will be our supreme delight. That was the supreme delight removed in paradise, God living with man. But see, it comes back again. There's an example you can use to illustrate that. If you have the privilege of being a, a, a grandparent like I do, you have grandchildren that come over and you think they're coming for you and your wife. Right? They think it's all about you and fellowship with you. But in reality, it's about the toys that are in the basement. The toys. We have old toys that none of these families have seen before. They like those toys. Well, we are like that when it comes to the new heaven and the new earth. We like the toys. We like the new heaven and the new earth. We like the things God has given us. But don't be fooled. We're not there for the toys. We're there for fellowship with God. This morning we heard that fellowship with God begins in this life. It begins now. It must begin now. That's the issue in our lives. But that fellowship with God will last forever. That will be the best and the greatest of all the gifts 
that the Lord God gives us, that we can just be with Him, be with Him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that we can be with each other, be with all those who have, who have already passed on, be, all, be with all brothers and sisters other side of the world we never met before. We'll be united together. Those whom we have buried, who died, will be with them. Why is it in Revelation 21 there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain? The old order passed away because God in some supreme manner will be there. The dwelling of God is with man and He will live with them. And therefore it will be His hand that takes away, that takes the kerchief and wipes away every tear from the eyes of the people of God as they come streaming into Zion. What a picture! All these people from out of the world in which there are hurts and there are pains and there are problems and tears and grief and sorrow, and God wipes it all away. Even more specifically, the real joy arises from the fact that we will dwell forever with our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of His words. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be finally. Or think of his high priestly prayer he uttered so passionately that final night. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me. It's not only his passion, it should be ours as well. Imagine nothing at all standing between him and us. What is the life everlasting? What is the essence of the new heaven and the new earth? It is this, being with our Lord Jesus Christ. What will we do in this life everlasting? Lounge around, sing forever. No, no, this will be our life. We will worship. We will work. There will be things to do on this new earth. We will communicate. We will enjoy activity, beauty, people, and best of all, God. We will see and we will love Jesus, our Savior, our Master, our friend, forever.